electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Every day, it seems, we get another piece of extraordinary economic news. And every day, it's presented as something dangerous, something negative. Whoa, something that will cause real problems down the road. Rather than greeting good news with wonder or maybe even jubilation, we respond with fear. Because we've forgotten what a rapidly expanding economy looks like. Maybe some people are too young. That includes days like today, where the Dow slipped 71 points. S&P ticked down 0.11%. NASDAQ gained 0.13%. So I'm going to give you the classic example, okay? Lead story in the digital edition of the Wall Street Journal when I woke up today. U.S. existing home prices hit record high in May. All right, now this piece, like so many others, reads like Exhibit A in the case against Jay Powell our valiant Fed chairman, who's trying to hold off on raising rates in order to boost job growth, even as demand is constrained by supply, which makes overall sales look weak. High prices, weak sales, recipe for disaster. Now, wait one second. First, Powell recognizes that a booming housing market is actually a good thing, not a bad thing. This is an industry that gives people good paying jobs, even if they don't have a computer science degree from Stanford. Plus, as I never get tired of telling you, housing punches above its weight in the economy. So you'd much rather have a rising housing market, which is about 10 percent of the economy, than a faltering housing market. Yet when you read these headlines about home prices hitting new records, they're they're almost always written like an arbinger of bad times, like the economy must be overheating because of housing. So is this industry the enemy when it's good? Something that must be tamed lest we end up with Weimar Republic-style hyperinflation, this time with wheelbarrows full of greenbacks and not Deutschmarks? I think this is a good time to give you some context beyond the headlines. Because in the context, what's happening in the housing market is actually healthy, not toxic. 
And I say that knowing that KB Holmes, which just reported, disappointed some who were looking for better numbers. For a clear head of what's going on, I'm turning to Doug Yearly, the CEO of Toll Brothers, not just because he runs a giant home builder, but because I've known him for years. And when things aren't good, he's always been forthcoming about it, as has his previous boss, Bob Toll. Not that long ago, Doug threw an important and incredibly enlightening analyst day. You can read it online to explain why the housing market's growth might actually be longer term than you think, rather than the cyclical boom and bust kind of growth that we've all come to expect. Listen to this. Over the last decade, six million less houses were built. Six million less houses were built than in the previous four decades going back to the 1970s. He goes on. It's possible that housing is just beginning to recover, given that we have many more people in this country than when we were building more homes, end quote. Yuli's conclusion, quote, it's going to take a long time for this pent-up demand to be satisfied. We think it's going to take years before we ever get back to anything close to the equilibrium that we had seen in a bunch of the prior decades. That's right. You know, we used to build two million homes a year when we had half, half the population. Now we're doing half that with twice the population. Now, if you think that you're really just talking this book, and I get that. I am sure the skeptics out there are doing that. Why don't we do this? Why don't we go to Stuart Miller? He's the straight shooting executive chairman of Lenar, another exec I have known since he was a young man. And I helped manage his brilliant father's finances when I was at Goldman Sachs. Miller tells us, quote, new home construction cannot ramp quickly enough to fill the void of the production deficit that has persisted over the past Decade, end quote. He continues, quote, while some question whether that deficit is 1 million homes or 5.5 million homes, the bottom line is that supply is short and it's likely to remain that way for some time to come, end quote. That's right. We literally can't build new homes fast enough to meet the demand. Now, let's say, okay, let's do what everybody tells me has to happen. If J-PAL raises interest rates, that's not going to create more homes. Even if it might push down housing prices by, of course, destroying demand. Then again, it could also make housing less affordable by driving up mortgage rates. I don't know, Hobson's choice to make. But a lot of that demand might be indestructible. If we just give it some time, it'll be good. It'll be a good thing. As Holes Doug Yearly lays out, quote, there are 73 million millennials who are now entering their 30s and they're buying homes, end quote. Now, this key ineluctable demographic detail always gets left out of stories about the red-hot housing market. And that's just plain misleading to do so because it means the demand may be, and here's a word no one ever wants to use with housing, but I'm going to use it. The demand may be secular, not cyclical. The Fed can try to slam the brakes on the economy by raising interest rates, but millennials have been stuck living in their parents' basements for years. After a decade getting over the financial crisis, they've finally got the capital to buy their own homes. Why would we want to put a stop to them buying their own homes and all the good things that happen to the economy when housing hums because of the multiplier effect of housing? Speaking of the financial crisis, though, we all remember the last time we had a red-hot housing market in 2006, right before the worst economic meltdown since the Great Depression. And yet, that red-hot housing market absolutely led to the financial crisis. It was the, it was the epicenter. But 2021 is not 2006. The problem back then was that many people were trading homes like they trade stocks on Robinhood, except with even more leverage. Our regulators were asleep at the wheel. Rather than trying to enforce lending standards, the Federal Reserve decided to cool down the housing market by raising interest rates 17 times in a row in rapid succession. Now, how'd that work out? Well, great. Yeah, cool the housing market. It crushed everything. I don't want to repeat the mistakes that led to the financial crisis. No, I, I, I got a show. I got to speak about this stuff. 
By the end of the last housing boom, we saw people buying houses with no money down at a, at a fraction of what the loan to value. Oh, the worst stuff was like they're buying them down, getting the down, buying them and then getting the down payment from a home equity loan, sometimes with no documentation needed, sometimes with wildly overvalued numbers. At the time, the home builders told us all these things were happening, including especially toll. The company even tried to limit speculative buying at the cost of lower sales because it saw what was happening. But this time, none of that stuff is going on. Lending standards are much more stringent. There are no more no-doc loans, no more ninja loans. It's actually very hard to get a mortgage, even though rates are low. Again, I think that points to constrained but secular growth for the first time in the history of the U.S. housing market. Finally, these Saturday night articles about how the housing market's too hot always seem to leave out the most salient part of the story, COVID-19. This stuff gets covered like the economy's still normal, but there's nothing normal about this situation. People have become untethered from their white-collar jobs, from the desk that they used to slave at. So now they can work remotely. They're fleeing the cities to work in places like Boise. Yes, Boise, Idaho. In many ways, Boise is the perfect microcosm for this event. Ever since May of last year, there's been a massive exodus of people moving from the West Coast to Idaho, creating one of the hottest real estate markets in the country, all documented in the toll analyst day. Same thing's been happening in Austin. Austin, Texas, which was already on fire even before the pandemic, it's got the hottest housing market in this country, which could also be the world. We're also seeing insane levels of demand from several markets in Florida. This is COVID-19 and some tax situations. Could all these markets be cooled down by the Fed? Absolutely. But what the heck would that accomplish? When home prices are on fire, we build more houses, which creates more jobs all over the country. When home prices fall, those jobs vanish. Why do so many reporters act like hurting the economy is a good thing? Unlike the lead up to the Great Recession, home buyers are actually solvent right now with excellent credit, strong stock portfolios. The home builders, they're in good shape. The banks are strong. Sometimes good news is good news. If you try to overthink it, you're going to miss out on some huge moves. Bottom line, the next time you read a story about how we should be alarmed that the economy is doing so well, think about the alternative. Would you rather see a headline like housing prices plummet as market weakens from higher rates or pal to home builders drop dead? Call me crazy, but I think that sounds like the wrong way to go. Ted in New Hampshire. Ted. Oh, hi, Jim. Uh, you're one of my heroes. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Jim, Thank I have. Several hundred shares of IBM okay. with a co- with a cost basis of one thirty five, right. and I bought it for the dividends. Uh, any, it's moved up nicely now. Any suggestions? And oh, by the way, I'm eighty four. All right. Well, you're a young eighty four, and I'm going to tell you, I want you to keep owning IBM. They are going to do this split off, but the main part of the dividend is going to stick with IBM. I think IBM is doing better than people think. I think it's a very solid situation, and I applaud you owning it. If anything, I would actually want you to buy more. And I know that sounds a little wild, but you know I've liked IBM since that last quarter. It's a very inexpensive stock. All right, please, next time you read a story about how scary it is that the economy is doing well, I challenge you to think about the alternative. On Man Money tonight, time for your portfolio to give the stock of app loving some loving. I'm taking a closer look at the company that was first brought to my attention by you, Kramer. Then, is it time to snap up shares of Snap? I'm going off the charts to find out. And Starboard has leveled accusations against the box management team, saying the company's underperforming. I'm going to sit down with CEO Aaron Levy. 
get his response. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. About a month ago, we got a call from Jay in Florida about a company named App Lovin'. That's APP for you home gamers. But because I didn't know much about this one, aside from the fact that it sounded like our favorite character in Superbad, I said I'd do some homework about this one. Circle back to it. Turns out App Lovin' makes software tools for mobile app developers, and the stock recently came public in mid-April. That deal landed with a thud. Pricing at 80 bucks and then sinking to 65 at the close on the first day of trading. Within a month, Apple Oven had actually tumbled below 50 bucks. <laughs> However, in the last six weeks, the market's gotten a lot more friendly toward high growth tech stocks, and Apple Oven's rebounded to $81 and change. Having done some more homework, I think this company's actually got a lot going for it. But it's not simple. This is not like the iconic low-effort stocks I recommended last night. Remember the Fords, the Costcos, the ones that are easier to follow because you already know how they make the money. AppLovin is more of a high-maintenance stock. You need to do some research if you want to understand this one. When you've done the homework, though, I think it is a... Bye, bye, bye! My reasoning. First, you need to get your head around what these guys actually do. AppLovin got its start as a marketing software company that helps mobile app developers bring in new users. And we all know if you got an app, you want more users. Then in 2018, AppLovin started a new business. Rather than just licensing its software to other developers, the company began to create its own portfolio of apps, mostly games, where they, they can use their tools to make more money. At this point, AppLovin has more than 200 of its own apps, including some of the most popular mobile games in the world, Project Makeover, Wordscapes, Clockmaker, and Bingo Story, among many others. All told, these guys now have 40 million daily active users. Finally, AppLovin's also got a host of technology tools beyond their original marketing software. They got a monetization platform that helps app developers squeeze more money out of their customers. They got a machine learning platform that feeds off the, off the data being generated by their own apps. Last but not least, AppLovin recently acquired a company called Adjust, which is a service that helps mobile advertisers track the effectiveness of their marketing campaigns. The great thing about AppLovin is that nearly every part of this business reinforces the other parts of the business. 
The analytics and machine learning platforms make their marketing and monetization software better. Those terrific software tools then allow the company to squeeze more money out of its own mobile apps. Those company-owned apps generate massive amounts of data, which is fed into the machine learning platform to make it more effective. Management talks about how they have this strategic flywheel. And really, i got to tell you, unlike most companies that claim to have a flywheel effect, and I mean, how many times they'll go, me, the platform's got a flywheel effect, it's an ecosystem. No, these guys actually have it. They're not just blowing smoke. In recent years, AppLovin has bought a bunch of mobile games as part of an effort to expand the company's own app side of the business. On average, when they buy a game, they can achieve over 100% revenue growth in the first year of ownership. Their platform is so effective that it's practically plug and play. When I read about this, I said, I got to develop an app and just hand it over to them to make it great. Put it all together. This is terrific play on a rapidly growing segment of the economy. Now, we know AppLovin's business is good because the company keeps putting up magnificent numbers. From 2018 through 2020, they had a 73 percent compound annual revenue growth. Even better, that growth rate is now accelerating. AppLovin's forecasting more than 80% revenue growth for 2021. When the company reported its first quarter results last month, the numbers were even better. They were talking 132% revenue growth, including 89% organic growth. Anyway, you slice it, that's just plain phenomenal. Their third-party software business grew at a 90% plus clip, thanks in part to the strength of their machine learning platform. Remember, though, AppLovin has its own portfolio of mobile apps, and they use all the, comp- the company's software tools. But when one division sells something to another division, this is a difficult accounting issue. They're not allowed to report that as revenue. So AppLovin created its own metric called total software transaction value. Basically, if their own internal studios were standalone businesses, then the software tools business would have had 155% sales growth. Fair? I don't know. Another way to look at it. That said, the bulk of AppLovin's uh, revenue now comes from its company-owned apps. This division saw 141% revenue growth in the first quarter. Remember, these are mobile games. And AppLovin's now making a fortune squeezing money out of its player base. And look, not only does this company have rapid revenue growth, it's also pretty much, it's pretty much profitable. In the first quarter, they lost $10 million. But when you look at the earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, it came in at $131 million up 110% year over year. We don't see a lot of companies like this on our show. Now, when we're dealing with fast-growing software stocks, you rarely see something that has both triple-digit sales growth and is just a hair's breadth away from turning a profit. That is the holy grail in this business. If AppLovin had come public a year ago, money managers would have been falling all over themselves to own this stock. But because the IPO came this April when fast-growing software stocks were very much out of favor, the deal blew up in your face. And that's why you can get this stock up only a buck from its IPO price, even though its first quarter out of the gate was spectacular. All right, so what's missing? What am I saying? What am I not saying here that makes it so it's not it was, it's, it's befuddling? There are some concerns. AppLovin is in part a gaming company. And remember, the gaming stocks have been having a very tough time lately because they're viewed as COVID plays. But I'm not worried. Crucially, AppLovin makes mobile games, meaning you can play them anywhere, not just when you're stuck at home on the couch. If anything, you're more likely to play mobile games when you're out of the house. The other issue. OK, remember, Apple rolled out these new privacy features, make it harder for mobile apps to advertise. However, it looks like this isn't hitting AppLovin as hard as we might have expected. I think the Apple uh, related negativity is baked in the stock. Maybe it's giving you why you get a bargainer. So what do you do? OK, right now it's at 81. AppLovin is trading at nine times next year's. 
I'm not earning sales. Okay, bear, bear with me, though. Put that in perspective. Let's look at a couple other fast-growing gaming software plays. Roblox and Unity. Roblox is at 16 times next year's sales, even though it has a similar growth forecast. Unity trades at 24 times next year's sales growth, and it's got a, it's got a lower growth forecast. Well, App Love is not exactly cheap. The stock is a bargain compared to those peers. My one real concern with this one is that the IPO was what I call a sliver deal. They only offered a small chunk of stock, which means it's likely to get hammered when the lockup on insider selling gradually expires over the next four months. But it's gradual. I think that could give you a chance to buy more App Love and into weakness if you're willing to be patient. So let me give you the bottom line. Jay in Florida. I got to give you the highest honor. You got horse sense. I think Apple Oven's got a great business and the stock is worth buying. Yes, speculative, but it is worth buying. Could be a bumpy ride. Please leave some room to add to your positional weakness. But Apple Oven, I'm loving. Stick with Kramer. Coming up, snap to it. Kramer checks out two very different companies, but only one is on track to make you money. Find out which next. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. that suddenly feels a lot more friendly to secular growth stocks. Could it be time to snap up some snap? In the last month and a half, the parent of Snapchat has, has seen its stock rebound hard off its May lows. And this is exactly the kind of stock that works in an environment where money managers are starting to worry about a slowing economy because of the Fed. See, remember, whether or not the Fed tightens sooner than expected, Snap's going to put up some excellent numbers, the same ones no matter what the Fed does. The only issue here is that the Wall Street fashion show and what it dictates. See, back in February, fast-growing Internet stocks like Snap went out of style. Big institutions reacted to the roaring economy by dumping secular growth stories and swapping into the boom and bust cyclicals. Now we're witnessing another rotation in the opposite direction, one that's gone unnoticed for weeks, but not anymore. Now everybody's talking about it. In other words, Snap's got great numbers, but the market's appreciation for those numbers tends to be very based on factors that are out of the company's control. So if you want to get a solid read on this stock, unemotional read, you have to look beyond the fundamentals. That's why tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brilliant technician. He's also my colleague at realmoney.com, where I blog every day, because Tim thinks Snap could be on the verge of a big breakout. His reasoning, 
check out the daily chart. At first glance, Collins loved that Snap recently bounced off its 50-day moving average. Okay, and the 50-day is the blue. All right. That's a short term measure of the stock's trajectory. Throw in the fact that it's now broken out above last week's highs and you do have a powerful combination. But as Collins pulled back, pulled back his view, he also spotted something else. He spotted the classic inverse or some people say it's reverse, but inverse head and shoulders pattern. Many looks like a person hanging upside down. This is one of the most reliably bullish formations in the entire book, even if it sounds like what happens when you're running low on shampoo, so you leave that bottle upside down. Granted, this is not a picture-perfect inverse head and shoulders pattern. The right shoulder doesn't have a kind of like a quasi-moda feel to it, right? See that? That's uh, it's a French book. It's, it's like 460 pages. It's not a bad read, though. And it's clear to Collins that the neckline is at 65. Once the stock breaks out over the neckline, as it did today, the pattern is complete. See, it broke out above the neckline. That's really important. And now the stock is ready to roar. So it matters that Snap's now cross through that level. This little green dot right there is the key, okay? Beyond that, even though stock, the stock's had a big move from the May lows, and I know a lot of people feel like, well, I missed it, but wait a second. Collins says it's still a long way from being overextended. I want you to take a look at the stochastic oscillator, the full stochastic oscillator, down at the bottom. Now, this is a powerful tool that tells you when a security is getting overbought or oversold. Overbought means that the stocks come up too far too fast, to the point where the buyers are exhausted and you're likely to get hit with a pullback. But at the moment, the full stochastics are right smack in the middle, meaning Snap could have a lot more room to run. See? No man's land. Now, after a monster move in late May, the stock spent the last few weeks consolidating its gains. Ooh, really good by trading sideways. And that allowed the oscillator to cool off. Even better, Collins points out that we're seeing a bullish crossover here. That's the green circle, where the black line crosses above the red one. And that's another reliably positive pattern. Put it all together, and Collins thinks that the chart is telling you to buy Snap on any breakout. This this got momentum, and it currently very much favors the bulls. This is beautiful. Given that the stock just broke out above the $64, $60 level today, he recommends snapping some up right here, right now, tomorrow morning. Based on the inverse head and shoulders pattern, he thinks it's going to 80. Uh, He'd be happy, though, with new all-time high of 75. When you zoom out to look at Snap's longer-term weekly chart, it's even more enticing than the daily one. Rather than an inverse head and shoulders of the weekly chart, we're now seeing a rounded W. Yes, as far as Collins is concerned, he thinks that even more bullish. Now, I happen to like the head and shoulders more away, but I got to admit, this is beautiful, too. W pattern, same takeaway. Snap has broken out above 65, smooth sailing to 80, which is not YOLO to the moon, but it'll do it. Meanwhile, the 10-week and 21-week simple moving averages are currently right on top of each other. Remember, see 10 and 20? Uh, These two levels have been significant for Snap in the past. You can see the stock regularly breaks out or breaks down after testing them. What's that mean? Well, if Snap breaks down below these crucial moving average levels at the 60, moving averages at the 60 level, okay, yellow fly for Collins. If we lose 60, he loses interest until this thing falls to the mid-50s. That said, he thinks the upside scenario is far more likely than the downside scenario. And, and you know, understand, I mean, that's how technicians think, okay? I, that's why we, at, we always meld the tacticals with the fundamentals on mad money. Again, you need to understand that this, is, this move is all about the Wall Street fashion show. And that I use, it's a shorthand term I use on mad money. And it's for what I'm willing to pay for the same sales or earnings. As that parameter changes based on bonds or the Fed or whims 
or all three. Snapshot the lights out when reported in late April, delivering a spectacular quarter. That triggered a wave of price target boosts from the analysts. But the stock barely budged in response, quickly gave back its bigger gains because money managers had lost their taste for fast-growing Internet stocks. Back then, they were loving, in love in the industrials, the smokestacks, so they were roaring. So the big boys had no interest in a social media company with 66% revenue growth. Now, though, the hedge funds are worried about a cooling economy. Federal Reserve officials making noises about possibly raising interest rates sooner than expected, tapering, whatever. Companies like Snap aren't hostage to the broader economy. So suddenly, that 66% revenue growth, same revenue growth that they had before, same. Now it's looking more attractive. That's the win. Well, this is a, this good news for rapidly growing social media stocks like Snap. Okay, let's look at the other side. It's bad news for the smokestack cyclical stocks that make money in a booming economy. I want you to take a look at CSX. Now, this is one of my favorite railroads. Great company. But right now, the stock looks like it could be ready to derail. So a few months ago, it was. All aboard. And now it's. While CSX has pulled back from 104 uh, at its May highs to below 95 today, the stock's still up nearly 40% versus where it was just 12 months ago. Collins points out that the late May breakdown took out a key support level, all right, uh, an uptrend that had carried the bulls for a year. In addition to falling through the floor support, CSX has also broken down below its 10-week and its 21-week moving average. is very negative. These were strong floors underneath the stock the whole way, but no, now they've become ceilings of resistance. Now, CSX could be making a bullish flag pattern here where a stock consolidates its gains in the shape of a flag before taking off again. But that pattern doesn't work unless the stock can break out above $100, up 5 bucks from here. Considering the recent action, Collins thinks CSX is going to see 90 before it sees 100 His advice, you don't want to own this. Better sit on the sidelines, wait to see when it, which way it moves. Now, he'd actually like it to break down below 85 or break out above 100, but not here. This is no man's land for him. So did business suddenly get worse for CSX? No, no, no. This is the mirror image of what happened to Snap. Railroads are cyclical businesses, practically print money, the economy's booming. So when people start talking about a slowdown, their stocks just get killed. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Tim Collins, suggest that Snap's got more room to run and CSX could have more downside. And you know what? That's exactly what you should expect, picture perfect, from the rotation that's going on right now in this stock market. Clarence in Utah. Clarence. Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Clarence. Hey, buddy. I appreciate the knowledge and the info you put out. Thank you very much. Thank you. What's going on? I'm pretty new at it, but I caught Zynga a while back, and they said they're going to cross-platform before they expected revenue growth. They closed down at 1027 today. Uh, I paid 1070. I'm just wondering, should I hang on? Yes, you should. Remember, we don't care mid money where stock came from. We care where it's going to. And I think you have a winner here. And I dislike that stock for a very long time, but I think you're okay. I need to go to, oh, I can't. Not enough time. Maybe we can have that person call tomorrow. All right, look, tonight's chartist thinks Snap has more room to run and CSX could have more downside. Uh, I agree with Snap. I'm not so sure about CSX as I like the rails, but that is a not great chart. Much more made money at. There's a battle brewing at Box. I've got the exclusive with the CEO as it fused with Starboard. Then is it time to raise a glass of the wine and spirits business? I'll tell you if it's worth considering as the summer reopening kicks into high gear. And all your calls, rapid fire, tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
All right, what the heck is really happening at Box, a cloud-based storage and digital collaboration platform that serves roughly two-thirds of the Fortune 500? Last year, Box fended off a challenge from the activist investors at Starboard Value. They handed over a few board seats to avoid a full-on proxy fight. Then Box proceeded to get an enormous boost because its platform helps facilitate remote work. So the stock soared. Activists stayed quiet. But earlier this year, we started hearing that Starboard might make a play for full control unless management gave in to the demands. They either want new initiatives to drive revenue growth or they want Box to put itself up for sale. While we actually heard rumors of a sale a few months ago, in April, Box announced a new agreement with another firm, KKR, which agreed to lead a $500 million investment in the company and got a board seat in exchange. Management's using most of the proceeds to buy back stock. The activists at Starboard took this particular action as a declaration of war. So they launched a full-on proxy fund proxy contest, writing public letters to express their displeasure, and nominating four new directors for Box's annual shareholders meeting next month. With the three directors they already have, that would give them control of the board. Both sides have an interesting story to tell. That's why I want to hear from the CEO, who's come on the show repeatedly since the company came public in 2015 and has always been straight with us. So let's check in with Aaron Levy. He's the co-founder and CEO of Box to get a better sense of this crazy situation. Mr. Levy, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim. Good to, uh, good to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so Aaron, I, I want to know what went wrong here. The stock has had a very big move. You had a good quarter. You're doing a lot of stuff with a lot of different companies that are very interesting. But somehow, I know things went as- astray with Starboard. Can you give me your view of how to get things back on track or how they went off to begin with? Well, yeah, I, it's, a, it's a great question. And um, I, I probably can't represent you know how things went off track. We've been executing our plan uh, that that uh, that we put out in the market now um, a couple of years ago, which was to drive greater operating margin and greater growth rates. Um, and, and in fact, in many cases, we've been actually upgrading those plans, especially on the bottom line uh, over the past four to six quarters. So we believe that we're executing a very effective strategy. Uh, we just uh, guided up in our last quarterly earnings, both on uh, our growth rate for this fiscal year, as well as our profitability targets. And we believe that um, we are building uh, the most uh, disruptive uh, and uh, the leading platform in content management. So we're very happy about the plan. Um, Our board uh, unanimously decided on this path forward as a company, as well as bringing KKR in as a partner uh, for the next stage of growth and uh, and profitability. And, you know, I think we, uh, uh, you know, fundamentally believe there's a significant amount of upside in our stock. And uh, we are going to be focused 100 percent on driving shareholder value from here. Okay, so let's talk about that KKR uh, financing. What? Why did you have to do it? You had cash, and it also seems like I can understand how people could say, you know what, that really is kind of like almost like a poison pill to block a sale, and it was unnecessary. Uh, and they pretty much bought a position, so to speak, because they didn't take it all down. They syndicated it out. Why bother with them? Well, we did a, a full strategic review uh, process through the winter and uh, in the early part of this calendar year uh, to really identify what did we believe would be the uh, in the best interest of all shareholders to drive shareholder value going forward. And that was a very comprehensive review uh, of uh, multiple options that we could pursue as a company to drive shareholder value. As a result, and, and during that process, KKR emerged as being incredibly excited about the company. Um, and as we spent more time with them and uh, learned what they could offer, both as a board partner, uh, as well as, you know, whether it's helping on the bottom line with their various operating groups, um, driving, you know, continued growth, uh, especially as we continue to do incremental and very prudent M&A uh, to, uh, to continue to expand our product efforts. Uh, as we continue to go international, 
we felt that we had a very strong long-term partner that wanted to invest in the business uh, and be able to see significant stock appreciation um, that, that we believe all shareholders will benefit from. So, you know, we think that, that the KKR endorsement is very helpful. Obviously, they only join boards and make investments where they believe there's significant upside and returns for shareholders. Um, and then what we wanted to do is, again, as you noted, due to our cash flow levels, we wanted to make sure that this also would benefit shareholders in the near term by providing a buyback opportunity um, if you wanted to monetize your investment in the near run. And so this kind of creates an opportunity where some investors that might be more short term oriented would be able to sell their shares back to the company. And uh, and then if you are more long term oriented, you can ride the upside as we continue to scale to new levels as a company. It's as you say, because obviously Starboard's not going anywhere. And I was it was disconcerting to read in their letter that they said, uh, to date, the board has refused our attempts to work together and we appear to be at an impasse when at the same time you have called the dialogue constructive in your last letter. So, I mean, what, uh, it's kind of he said, she said they they don't regard as constructive and you do. I would rather see because I like you. and I like Starboard. I like the I know it sounds a little a little silly, but I'd like everybody to get along. I would love to see some sort of compromise. Is there anything you can do to make this work? Because I don't see anybody here as a bad guy, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, from our, our relationship over the years, um, we are very collaborative in nature, especially with shareholders. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in Starboard's own uh, proxy filing, you can see dozens and dozens of interactions uh, that we've had with, with Starboard over the past couple of years. So uh, we have tried to spend uh, an incredible amount of time ensuring that Starboard understands our strategy, uh, that we're hearing their feedback, that we're taking their perspective into account. In fact, last year, as a part of a settlement that we uh, that we had with them, we added two board members uh, that they approved as a part of that settlement. So uh, we felt like they've helped, um, you know, uh, continue to, to evolve the board's governance and independence uh, over time. But uh, it looks like maybe they didn't um, ultimately agree with with some of the board's approaches, and that's their prerogative. Uh, but we fundamentally, as a board, uh, believe that we have the right path forward. You've seen it in our shareholder return returns. Uh, we're one of the fastest growing stocks of this year. Um, and um, and up about 40 percent uh, year to date. So we believe that the current path that we're on uh, is the right path. Uh, and, you know, we have seven new board members just in the past couple of years. Right. So we don't believe that further board change is warranted. Um, and we believe that there's, again, a significant amount of upside left in the business based on the plan that we're executing. So okay. we're incredibly excited about the path forward. Uh, I've talked I've talked with many, many shareholders uh, that are really excited about Box's path forward, um, and uh, and and we are um, uh, we're very focused on executing right, that well, plan. Let me ask one last question. Uh, I understand you to spend twenty percent of your revenue each year on stock-based compensation. You have only had non-GAAP profitability. Uh, some could say that you're growing only around ten percent that last uh, in the last year. So that in in that sense, in tr- classic profitability and payment, you are not up to snuff versus other companies. Well, I would say that actually, if you look at our peer group in the SaaS ecosystem, um, especially companies that are reinvesting for growth, which obviously is the real kind of prize in one of these markets when you're going after a $50 billion market, uh, is you want to be driving growth uh, with strong economics on the bottom line. Uh, and uh, and we, we believe we're within uh, kind of a normal peer set when it looks when you look at stock based compensation. And obviously, we've been driving you know, significant improvements on, obviously, the non-GAAP operating margin uh, improvements, which are really driven by our efficiency, 
um, and a lot of the investments we've been making in uh, driving just, again, very rigorous execution. So again, when we talk to our shareholders, and if you look at the analysts that have put out notes, um, there's a lot of conviction on the path forward as a company. And we believe that, you know, you can imagine, Jim, and I know you know the, the KKR folks very well. You can imagine the kind of work that they did uh, before Absolutely. before leading an investment in the company and joining our board uh, around the upside potential as a as a business. And we've seen similar investments uh, just uh, just yesterday with Silver Lake going into Splunk right. uh, last year with Bain and Nutanix. So it's a pretty common pattern to have a long term partner that wants to join the board, invest uh, and make sure that they are driving, you know, significant shareholder returns over the long run. And that's what KKR did with Box. No, and to be fair, when I saw it, I did say on air that I thought it was good for the company. So I can't take that back because that was my view. I, it was my view when I saw it with Splunk yesterday with Silver Lake. I said that that's good for Doug. It was good for you. Good for the company. So I'm so glad you came on, Aaron Levy. You're always straight shooter with us. Co-founder and CEO of Box. Great to see you again, sir. Thanks, Jim. Really appreciate it. You got to make up your minds. I mean, stocks had a big run, but I understand also that all the things that Starboard's raised, and Starboard's has a good record in making money for you, the shareholders. May have money's back yet to break. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him. The lightning round is coming up next. It is time for the and then the lighting is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? It's the lighting round. Okay, we're there, buddy. Let's go to Mike in Virginia. Mike. Jimmy Till Booyah. Oh, man, the chill's in the house. And I'm, I got Ski Daddy in my mind because my new dog, NVIDIA. He oh. was ready, Ski Daddy, at 3.30 this morning. Let's go to work. What's up? Man, sounds like you got more energy than a bat. You bet. Um. Hey, uh, in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, um, First Solar's CEO, Mark Widmer, that's ticker symbol FSLR, is highly confident that Washington will have his company's back regarding the upcoming infrastructure bill. Uh, well, you know, I just, I get, I have my Apple Watch, and literally a second ago, they, they ran a New York Times story about how the, the uh, president is going to back, uh, is going to uh, not uh, su- support China from being in, uh, dropping some uh, some solar panels here uh, because of religious freedom. So I think you're in great shape. I think that stock's going to move up. Let's go to John in New Jersey. John. That's Jimmy Chill. How you doing, John? Chill's doing well. What's going on? The blueberry capital of the world. Listen, I'm down to get some blueberries for Mento's farm. Don't forget the um, the raspberries are, in fe- are, are almost in season. Go ahead. Go ahead. These blueberries are awesome, though. But what do you think about G-A-N? And for my birthday, I think uh, uh, naked, N-A-K-D. I'm going to run naked through Hamilton. If I, I would take, uh, I, you know, I might take that. Off. Let's take that idea off the table. I mean, like, you know, we'll keep it in our heads, but we'll take it off the table. Um, again, it's a gaming. You know, there's so many of these gambling companies right now. I don't want to be in them. There's just too many of them. Let's go to Charles in Mississippi. Charles. Jim Cramer, Big Booyah from Mississippi. I like Mississippi. It's beautiful. What's going on? Jim, you recommended a stock about a year ago, uh, EBRI. I bought in at five ninety five, and it has just taken off. What do you think I should do? Buy, sell, or hold? Well, that's, 
other gaming company. Well, I got to tell you, I got to be true to myself here. I think you got to take a little off the table. I think you'd be in good shape. That's a nice game. Take your cost basis out and then live the play again. Do I have time for one more? Yes, I can go to Darius in Florida. Darius. Hey, how you doing, Jim? Thank you for having me. I am thrilled that you're on. What's going on? Uh, you know, I'd like to say thank you, man. We love what you're doing. Oh, uh, my ticker is um, STEM. Ticker STM. Remember, we like STEM. We like what they were doing with the environment, like they're doing with energy. I didn't expect it to take off as well as it did. But the market has suddenly fallen in love with this kind of stock again, and I think you're in good shape. STEM. Let's go to Sandy in Delaware. Sandy. Hi, booyah. Booyah. Hey, Jim. Um, for um, growth. Is it too late to buy PPG? All right. Now, that is the exact opposite. I mean, we have a lot to say about a great company like PPG, but at this very moment, it is not going to do as well as the higher growth stocks. It just won't. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up. Will the pandemic recovery be served bottled or on draft? Find out why the next reopening play might be found in your local pub. Next. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus, special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Sometimes stock picking can be as easy as reading the earnings release from a major player in a particular industry, and then extrapolating what that means to its peers. Every morning I get up unnaturally early, long before the sun. And one of the benefits is that you often see information from overseas that simply gets overlooked here in the country. For example, this morning I read the release from a gigantic liquor company, Pernod Ricard. Uh, they were saying that, quote, the pace of the recovery is proving stronger than expected, end quote. This is the company that makes high-end liquor like Absolute Vodka, Chivas Regal, Glenlivet Scotch, not to mention Jameson Irish Whiskey, and a host of different wines. Pernod Ricard also says that drinking outside the home is accelerating as COVID restrictions get rolled back. That means numbers are going higher. The run in Pernod Ricard has already happened. That's what happens when you have a pre-announcement like that. But there could still be pin action for other stocks. So you got to think, well, what looks a little like, not exactly because these people, all these companies are unique, but what looks a little like Pernova Card? Well, how about STZ, Constellation Brands? It's got $2.5 billion in high-end spirits that look just like Pernod, but $6 billion in beer, Corona, Modelo, and Pacifico. And I got to tell you, this is where it gets interesting. Even better, Constellation has a catalyst. They report next week, so we don't have to wait long for something good to happen. Now, to take an anecdotal turn for a second, I own a Mexican tavern bar, San Miguel, in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn. And we sell a ton of Constellations product, from Casa Noble Tequilas, our number one seller, to Modelo Negro, and we have Pacifico on tap, and of course, Corona. I see the sales figures year over year. I actually see them day or every night. They are astounding. And here I'm talking about 2021 over 2019, because the COVID restrictions made a shutdown in 2020. 
I talked to a number of bar owners in a similar situation because I keep my pulse on this industry. Still very New York centric, but I keep my pulse on it. And I have a good read on the rest of the country, too. Sales are incredibly strong right now for beer, much stronger than anyone expected. People really want to go out and get plastered. Meanwhile, we know the Constellation has launched its Corona Hard Seltzer, and there are already signs that it's a big hit. Bill Newman said so much, the CEO, when he came on Mad Money. As far as its spirits go, okay, it's Fedka vodka, not absolute. It's high whiskey, whisk, uh, high West whiskeys. It's not uh, when you take a look at, at Jameson, but it's got premium wines that look enough like Pernod Ricard, actually better than Pernod Ricard, that I think the similarities are too great to ignore. Of course, one of the big knocks against Constellation is they pay too much for their stake in cannabis growth. That's their foray into the cannabis business. While that's probably true, they they did pay too much. This is something that's already baked into the stock price. I look at it another way, though. I think this is the last quarter before people start buzzing about pot legalization on the ballot. I think it would be very big in the fall. A bunch of states and cities hold elections, and the White House is no longer against it. Turns out legalization has become extremely popular in this country. So I, I bet this company will finally get credit for its big investment in cannabis. Meanwhile, Constellation's huge cash generator. They're able to buy back stock and pay down debt at the same time. It's been prudent the whole way. When the spending on canopy grew out of control, they bit the bullet, fired the CEO, then replaced him with Constellation's very tough, very knowledgeable chief financial officer. Right now, the stock's only up 2% for the year. It's down 20 points from its high. Of course, there are no sure things in this business. We can't just say, oh, what's good for the goose of Pernod Ricard is, is good for the gander of Constellation Brands. But there are a lot of similarities here. The one big difference is that Constellation has a huge beer business. I don't mind, because I think that business is booming. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.